Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be on the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You can also follow me on social media, E.W. Erickson. You should follow me on Instagram at E.W. Erickson. Although Philip tells me he's putting more clips of the show on Facebook and YouTube. You know, I got Facebook and YouTube, E.W. Erickson there. I'm E.W. Erickson everywhere. Nonetheless, I digress. I'll take your phone calls. But first, you have to listen to me. I have stuff to say. And it's not good for the Democrats, I'm afraid. Oh, wow. Joe Biden's net disapproval is in double digits in the 538 average of polls and polls of voters. It's been a while since he was in double digits negatively there and at the real career politics polling average. It's just not good news for the Democrats right now as they're starting reality is dawning and the run-up to the election. And that's going to hurt them. When the president's disapproval is in the low 40s, it tends to be a bloodbath for the incumbent party. His disapproval of the real clear politics polling average is, uh, his disapproval is 12.4% higher than the approved number, 53.3 to 40.9. We now have the Gallup polling out. In the Gallup polling, let me just read you the current polling so you have it in perspective. And I'm leaving out the partisan polling. The partisan polling, like Rasmussen, I'm not a fan of Rasmussen polling. And while I actually think Trafalgar does a pretty good poll, it is definitely Republican. So I'm leaving it out. Let me just give you the the media polling. And you can say the media is biased for the Democrats, and they are. But they try to get the polling right. I mean, just, just listen. Follow along with me here. He's down 14 points in the USA Today poll. He's only down a point in the Investor Business Daily tip poll. And IBD tip, they kind of lean to the right. But he's down 19 in the Quinnipiac poll. And people could say, well, Quinnipiac's an outlier. Because, you know, with the Reuters-Ipsos poll, he's only down five. Yeah, you can say it's an outlier, that Quinnipiac poll. Except he's down 11 in the Economist poll. He's down 16 in the Politico poll. He's down 16 in the Gallup poll. Quinnipiac poll doesn't look so much like an outlier. At that point, does it? Down 14 in USA, down 16 in Economist, down 16 in, uh, no, down 11 in Economist, down 16 in Politico, down 16 in Gallup, down 19 in Quinnipiac. Quinnipiac doesn't look like an outlier so much. Even if you take out the Quinnipiac and you take out the IBD poll, the high and the low, it's still bad for Biden. And the Democrats are starting to be vocal about it. Ashley Parker, Tyler Pager, and Sean Sullivan have this at the Washington Post. Here's the headline. The long slide inside Biden's declining popularity as he struggles with multiple crises. The second week of August began as a time for vacation for President Biden and some of his team. Then Afghanistan imploded. The reports out of Kabul were harrowing. Images of desperate Afghan nationals clinging to U.S. military airplanes leaving the country. Days later, a suicide bombing at the gate to the airport, killing 13 U.S. soldiers. 
Addressing the nation on August 16th, Biden defended his decision to leave Afghanistan, but acknowledged that the Taliban takeover of the country did unfold more quickly than we anticipated. Administration officials and allies publicly argued there was no good way to exit a war that had been lost years ago, and they privately said within a few weeks most Americans would forget about the messy process. But across the river in Arlington, aides working for Democrat Terry McAuliffe's gubernatorial campaign in Virginia were picking up troubling trends. The race was tightening amid what they would describe in a memo as a negative national climate, collateral damage from the chaotic Afghan withdrawal, among other issues. The memo found that voters also viewed the coronavirus pandemic and the economy as two of their three most important issues. In post-election briefings with Democrats after McAuliffe's loss, Campaign aides argued the crisis the Biden administration faced in August undercut the president and his party's message of competence and normalcy. Biden on Thursday marks the first full year of his presidency facing intra-party democratic disarray, stalled legislation, supply chain issues, worrying inflation, rising tensions with Russia, and another highly transmissible coronavirus variant called Omicron, all of which have led to an approval, approval rating stuck in the low 40s. Staff defend him, but... Capitol Hill staff are throwing him under the bus. Dina Titus, on the record, a congresswoman from Nevada, said if I were to give the Biden administration a grade and I was a political science professor for a long time, I'd give them an incomplete. That's a polite way of saying an F. Tom Milanowski, a Democrat from New Jersey, congressman says, People will always hold the president in office responsible for when things don't feel right. Oof. These are diplomatic ways of saying he's screwing up. Suburban women in a focus group by Selinda Lake, the highly respected Democratic pollster, Selinda Lake, got together a group of women on behalf of liberal organizations. Odd Old, incoherent, lazy, sleepy Joe, he seems weak. Those are all statements from women in the focus group. Now they're trying to change the message. They're desperate to change the message. But I don't believe this White House can change the message if they don't change the people. This is the important point, I think, that if you're a Democrat, you need to understand this. They've been in this White House for a year now. People is policy. People is policy. Sounds like bad grammar. But focus on the underlying statement. People is policy. When you are surrounded in the White House, as Joe Biden is, with a group of progressives who believe in the inevitability of the progressive agenda, and they've marched to push the progressive agenda, changing your message does not change the agenda. And look at how they've changed the message thus far. They dropped Build Back Better. Do you know 
moderate Democrats around the country are not campaigning on Build Back Better. They're not. Progressives are. Moderates aren't. Moderates are focused on the infrastructure bill that passed. They're not campaigning on Build Back Better. They're not campaigning on voting rights. And the Biden administration, they dropped Build Back Better to pivot to voting and election reform. They did it according to Chuck Todd at NBC, Meet the Press. I played the audio yesterday. They did it because the base demanded it. The base wanted the view of a president who would fight. The base needed the president to fight. The base needed anger from the president on this issue. It's one they care about that they can't get past. They needed to see a show of solidarity. And it was met by that base that wanted it with a level of boredom and frustration. Many of them boycotted it. Stacey Abrams boycotted it. She doesn't want to say she boycotted it, but she boycotted it. Progressive voting rights groups, they refused to go to Georgia to stand by the president when he gave its speech. And then the president had to do damage control. The president had to do damage control and claim that he wasn't actually calling people racist and it wasn't partisan. Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, has had to go out and, and engage in damage control over the president's speech. I want to pivot back to voting rights, sure. particularly um uh, the president's speech last week. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how it came together, but also I wonder if you'll respond to some of the criticism about it, that it was too aggressive or divisive and, and that, you know, some of the rhetoric that he used wasn't, you know, conducive to getting folks, you know, who are opposed on board. Well, uh, sorry, which piece did you want me to start with? Uh, whichever one is best for you. Uh, okay. Well, I, I would say first that, um, you know, the president delivered a powerful speech about uh, the protection of people's fundamental rights in this in this country, which is their right to vote, their right to uh, to vote for anyone they choose, whether it is him or someone else. It was not a partisan speech. It was intended to lay out for the public exactly what's at stake and lay out for elected officials what's at stake. Um, and he stands by everything he said in that speech. He stands by everything he says in the speech, but it wasn't a partisan speech. It wasn't a partisan speech, but it drew the ire of not just Republicans, but Democrats. It drew the ire of Democrats. It made Manchin and Cinema mad. And here's the problem. The president relied on his staff, on his advisors, to make that speech. They're now having to walk it back and claim it wasn't partisan, wasn't meant to call people racist, even though he said it in the speech. You're on his side or you're on Jefferson Davis's side. You're on his side or you're on George Wallace's side. You're on his side or you're on Bull Connor's side. He's calling people racist if they don't agree with him. And now he's having to walk it back. He tried to go to Mitch McConnell to tell Mitch McConnell he really didn't mean what he said. He wasn't talking about people. That was his excuse, according to CNN. You can't change the message when you don't change the people. And he is not changing the people. There is no exodus of people 
One year into his administration, Ron Klain is still there. Jen Psaki is still there. Uh, what's her name? Dylan is still there. The communications director. All of these people are still there. They are still there. They are the ones who advised him to do these things. They're not going to change their instincts. You don't change your instincts. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. You want to change the message. You have to change the people because the people are policy. And if you don't change the people, the voters sure as hell are going to change the people come November. That's the bottom line. This isn't hard. It's how it is done. You do have to fire people. But when the people are in charge of the president, they're not going to fire themselves. And at this point, Ron Klain and his staff need to go. Jill Biden needs to uh, step in for her husband. Jill needs to clean house. You know, Nancy Reagan very famously cleaned house in the Reagan administration. Jill Biden is clearly no Nancy Reagan. Nancy Reagan wanted to make sure when things were going bad for President Reagan that she got stuff back on board and on track, and and she shook up the White House herself. Her force of will, she did it. Well-documented history there. Brought in people who could help Reagan. Joe Biden is not being helped by his staff. They cannot change a message because the staff believe the message he's already giving. So if they try to change the message away from what they believe, it will sound inauthentic. And Americans have very good BS detectors. They do. And so they will detect the inauthenticity in Biden's new message, and it's going to blow up in their face. It's just going to. It's obvious. You cannot change fundamentally a message when you've doubled down on this message so much you've doubled tripled quadrupled down on the current message it's not working you can't just diametrically change it that's not how politics works it's not how people work the bs detector of the american public is going to go off when they try this and it's going to hurt them even further and by the way there's another warning sign out there hispanic democrats are starting to really freak out I want to cut corners and just get to the chase. A lot of you hear podcast ads and radio ads for Bull and Branch, and you're thinking, eh, they're just telling you it because they're getting paid. I'm actually telling you it because I'm a customer. We actually have Bull and Branch sheets, and yes, they are an ad. Yes, this is an ad, but yes, I really am a customer. I only like to do ads for companies that I really like, and I love Bull and Branch. So does my wife. My wife actually heard the ads, and she wanted to try the sheets, and now they are the sheets in our house. Bull and Branch does not cut corners. They make super soft, wonderful sheets. They use the softest organic cotton they can find. They get better with every wash. They soften and soften and soften, and they only use 100% sustainable raw materials. They're the first fair trade certified manufacturer of linen. You can feel as good about your Bull and Branch sheets as they feel against your skin. They are so soft. They don't get too hot. They don't get too cold. They're just great. And every wash improves them. That, I'm telling you, is one of the coolest things about these sheets. It's like sleeping on a new bed every time you wash the sheets. It's great. Now, you can experience the best sheets you've ever felt at bowlandbranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code ERIC at checkout. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Yes, there, there's there's more to the problem uh, that the Democrats have right now. And I've been warning them. I've, I Listen, I was 
a political pundit. I was a strategist. I was a campaign manager. I, I can map out where this stuff heads. I can. And I can tell you for a while, I've been saying, listen, just objectively, this is bad news for the Democrats. And people don't want to believe, oh, you're a partisan, you're a conservative. Believe it or not, it is possible generally to separate your partisanship from your advice. You can recognize you have biases and you can do some analysis and say, Here, here's their problem. And, you know, you have to, to some degree, when you're on a campaign and you're running, you got to think, what is the other side going to attack me on? And you got to be able to, to process what they're thinking. And you can't do that if you're so broken by your own partisanship, you can't relate to the other side. And I've been warning the Democrats, you got problems and they don't want to listen. This is a headline from the Politico. Democrats admit they're losing ground with Latino voters. This is uh, today. Really? It took you this long to figure it out from the 2020 election when the exit polling showed you had a problem. Latino Democratic leaders and operatives are increasingly worried that time is running out to do anything that would make a significant difference ahead of the 2022 midterms when the party needs a robust Latino turnout to preserve its slim majorities in Congress. For years, those leaders have warned that the party needs to invest earlier in outreach hire more Latinos for decision-making positions, and talk to Latino voters about more issues than just immigration. But after a presidential election marked by former President Donald Trump's impressive gains with Latinos across the country, not just in Texas and Florida, they see a lack of urgency in addressing those issues. Between that and a failure to keep pace with GOP efforts to communicate with Latinos on newer platforms, there's a creeping fear that the traditional Democratic advantage with Latino voters will continue to erode in November. Intellectually, Democrats know they have a problem, said Maria Teresa Kumar, founding president of and CEO of Voto Latino, a grassroots political organization. But I haven't seen the investment that needs to happen for it to translate. Donald Trump improved his margins in 78 of the nation's 100 majority Hispanic counties in 2020. Oh, there are other other groups out there as well. And and Henry Cuellar, one of the uh, Hispanic uh, Texas Democratic congressmen, he's warning them as well. Here's the problem for the Democrats. They have so embraced intersectionalism and critical theory. I'm not talking critical race theory here. Just critical theory in general. That it's all about power dynamics. And they believe that minorities will not support white people generally. And that if their party shows itself to be a party of minorities and for minorities, they'll go with them, except if just following the Democrats on logic, their parties increasingly become the party of rich, white, secular people, and black and Hispanic voters tend to be some of the strongest Christians in the country. So you're aligning them to a party that not only disparages them by calling them Latinx, a word that doesn't exist in Spanish and can't exist in Spanish, but you're also aligning them with a bunch of rich white Karens who don't even believe in God and lecture them on their belief in God. Hispanic and and, uh, black voters are the least likely in this country to buy into the idea that a boy can become a girl and, and you want the boys to get on their girls' teams and compete against them for scholarships on the girls' sports. It's not working for them, and they don't understand it. 
But more importantly, if you follow their intersectional dynamics, what you find is that the longer a Hispanic person stays in the United States as an immigrant, they and their family begins to view themselves not as Hispanic, but as white. Oh, and that opens a whole can of worms on the intersectional spectrum. The plain bottom line here, though, is that the Democrats, they look at minority voters and treat them as ethnic and racial groups, and they stopped treating them like individual Americans. And that is what is going to cost them dearly in the election by not treating them with respect. Oh, ouch. Ah. <laughs> Y'all. Okay. I need to set the stage for you on this. It's very important. Yesterday, yes, we have to go back to the NPR story. So Nina Totenberg at NPR runs a story that the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, asked all of the justices to wear masks at the court to protect Sonia Sotomayor due to her diabetes. Nina Totenberg runs the story. And the media grabs hold of the story, puts Neil Gorsuch in a very bad light, casts him as a jerk because he refuses to wear the mask, and he sits right next to Sotomayor. So today, in a very rare statement from the Supreme Court, Sonia Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch together release a statement saying that the report is false that uh, regarding Sotomayor asking Gorsuch, to put on a mask. They are, even though they disagree on the law, they are friends. And the pushback from reporters, including reporters at NPR defending Nina Totenberg, is that, well, the actual report is that the chief justice asked. The chief justice asked. So it's not really even a denial of the story. It's a non-denial denial. David Gura, who is a reporter at NPR, among others, uh, rushed out to defend his colleague, Nina Totenberg, and said, uh, quote, I am surprised at how many Supreme Court correspondents I admire are passing along a statement from two justices that is at best false without any context whatsoever. Now, why? Because... Their statement was that she did not ask Neil Gorsuch to wear a mask, that it's false, and they're friends. But, 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 the reporter's reporting is that it wasn't Sotomayor who asked, it was John Roberts who asked. Well, as of 10 minutes ago, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court has released a statement. I did not request Justice Gorsuch or any other justice to wear a mask on the bench. This is now three justices of the Supreme Court, and not just any three, the two involved and the Chief Justice of the United States who it was attributed to saying this, all denying the report from Nina Totenberg. What is so ridiculous here is that it was very clear from the Sonia Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch joint statement that this story was, was repudiated, but tons of reporters across the board from NPR to New York Magazine and others 
also, well, this isn't really a denial because it was about the chief justice. And now here comes the chief justice, Iron Carmen, senior correspondent for New York Magazine, who wrote, co-author of the notorious RBG about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, says, I invite anyone here to put up their sources against Nina Totenberg's. Well, I'll raise you the chief justice. I'm, I guess I'm tweeting of the United States as a source. And I wonder if these people will still double, they may still double down. Now, here's the larger issue here. Sonia Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch came out and denied this story. And reporters did their best to quibble with it and twist it. Says, well, it wasn't really a denial because the story was actually about the Chief Justice asking, not Sotomayor asking. They used the word false in their in their statement. They used the word false. And they also say that Sonia Sotomayor says they're friends. Now, if your friend asked you to put a mask on due to their health, don't you think your friend would? Well, yeah. If you're friends and you're deeply concerned about the mask and you're not a you're not a brain biblical donkey, yeah, if your friend is really concerned about their health and says, please, would you wear a mask for me because of my health? You would because you're friends. Sonia Sotomayor said they're friends and said that the story is false about Gorsuch and the mask. And yet the media still wanted to quibble. The media still wanted to twist it. It was obvious the story was wrong, but to back up Nina Totenberg of NPR, the media circled the wagon around her and claimed that the statement wasn't really the denial that it was. So now the Chief Justice of the United States has had to himself come out and say it's false. And you will not be surprised to learn there are still blue checks on Twitter who are refusing to believe it. Amazing. This is where we are. Now, this comes on the heels of a report I mentioned. Edelman is a PR firm in Washington, D.C., and it does trust barometers. It does these massive global surveys. And in its 2022 Global Trust Barometer, a survey of 35,000 respondents across 28 countries, it finds a majority of people globally believe journalists, 67%, government leaders at 66%, and business executives at 63% are purposefully trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false or gross exaggerations. People who live in democracies are quickly losing trust in those democracies. This is an example, this Nino Totenberg example, this is an example of why this is happening and how it's happening and what's going on. The media wants to protect their own. They don't want to self-reflect. They, they want no self-reflection whatsoever on these things. They would rather defend Nino Totenberg and twist the truth when it comes to the Gorsuch Sotomayor statement than admit that Nina Totenberg, one of their own, was wrong. And it takes the chief justice being the adult in the room to come out and say the story is false for them to back down. And some of them even now refuse to back down. I'm not surprised, but they don't understand. They have no self-awareness on how much damage they're doing to the press overall by what how they're behaving. It's unfortunate uh, that they're doing this. Now, I, I need to move on to a really, I, I'm, I've debated talking about this story. 
I've really debated. I pushed it off. I've kept pushing it off, but I need to go there with a story. Some of my dear friends are probably going to send me admonishments for what I'm about to talk about. As an aside, um, I'm in the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA. And uh, in the PCA, they vote on things called overtures. You know, um, you, you, you go to General Assembly once a year and you decide we need to make changes to the structure of the institution of the PCA of the church. And so what we do is, is we're going to pass an overture. And the way an overture works is a majority of the General Assembly passes it. And then it goes to the individual presbyteries around the country. Every state is divided into presbyteries. And if two-thirds of them agree, then it goes back to the General Assembly and they have another majority vote. And if so, they make a change. It's very difficult to make change. And uh, over the last couple of years, a number of activists within the PCA have been pushing to essentially weaken uh, the standards of biblical sexuality. Uh, one of those individuals is a pastor who openly says he is same-sex attracted and that uh, Jesus doesn't really want us heterosexual. He wants us holy. That That's one of the lines from his book. And so conservatives within the denomination have pushed back, and now the PCA is voting. If you're in the PCA, you should tell your leaders to vote yes on, on Overture 23, which would really clarify that this is out of bounds for the church. There's a twisting language going on. One of the things that happens uh, that since I've started talking about this in the last few weeks as this thing's going up for a vote is I'm stunned by the number of people who are pushing me one way or the other on the issue, who are lobbying me, who are trying to explain it away, who want me not to talk about the issue. People who are friends of mine uh, pushing me one way or the other. I, I've had in the past people reach out to my own pastor and people in my own church to try to persuade me to either take a position on something or to keep quiet on something. And it doesn't just happen on these church issues. It happens on other issues as well. And I, I wish people would understand by now, I mean, the number one rule of dealing with me is when you tell me not to talk about a subject, I am going to talk about the subject, if only to convey to you that you cannot tell me what to think, how to think, or what to say on radio. And on the subject topic I'm about to bring up, I guarantee you I'm going to get a flood of emails because I'm going to play for you an advertisement for a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate from Louisiana. And I need you to put the visual in your head. There's a black man, and it's relevant that he's black. And he's sitting in a chair in South Louisiana in a field, and he's smoking marijuana. And this is his advertisement. Every 37 seconds, someone is arrested for possession of marijuana. Since 2010, state and local police have arrested an estimated 7.3 million Americans for violating marijuana laws, over half of all drug arrests. Black people are four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana laws than white people. States waste $3.7 billion enforcing marijuana laws every year. Most of the people police are arresting aren't dealers, but rather people with small amounts of pot, just like me. I'm Gary Chambers, and I'm running for the U.S. Senate, and I approve this message. Now, he's not going to win. He's a, a uh, one-note wonder. 
on the issue of, of marijuana legalization. We don't need to get into an argument on marijuana legalization. We don't. But I, I do have something I want to say. I'm glad he put this ad out. And I hope it gets people thinking. I, I have a friend of mine who one time told me that I, I did not realize uh, he was a regular consumer of marijuana. Uh, not only was he a regular consumer, but he carried a lot of it with him at all times. And as a just matter-of-factly one time looked at me and said, well, I can get away with it because I'm white and well-to-do. And he's not alone in that. And it's a thing. And this is my problem with the way we enforce this law is that if you're a white person and a black person and you both have marijuana on you and the black person is far more likely to get punished and go to jail. It's just, it's the truth. I mean, lies, damn lies and statistics you can say, but, but that's the stat. That's the reality. Uh, a white guy can get away with something. A white woman can get away with something that someone who's black can't when it comes to marijuana. Now, there's a growing movement around the country in urban areas, even here in Georgia where I am, to not enforce uh, less than an ounce uh, of marijuana as possession. I don't care whether you legalize it or keep it illegal. I really don't. I don't care whether you enforce it on everyone or don't enforce it at all. The problem here I care deeply about is if we're all equal under the law, then we should be engaged in equal treatment under the law. And this candidate in Louisiana is actually right on this particular issue, that uh, there is a discrepancy in the law and how it's enforced between white and black communities. And there are various reasons for that. When you talk to police officers, oftentimes they'll say they're actually going for other crimes. And in the process of searching the suspect, they find marijuana on the person. And that's why that person also gets charged with marijuana. There, there are complicating factors there, and we should be mindful of that. But in general, I do think it's true. There is a perception that depending on your community and the color of your skin, you can get away with things that other people can't. And I just think we as a society, we can't be looking at the color of people's skin. We've got to be looking at people individually as Americans. And if we're looking in individually at Americans, but we're applying the law and enforcing the law and punishing people differently, we have a real problem with not just respect for law, but enforcement of law. And I don't know that I know what the answer is, but I, I thought it was very bold of this guy to do this commercial and say some things that a lot of people don't want to hear, but actually is true. So either enforce the law or don't enforce the law, legalize or don't legalize. I, frankly, I think we're headed to the point, given the amount of states that are legalizing and the growing movement in Congress, even among some Republicans legalize, I, I think states that don't make it legal probably better figure out real quick what they're going to do about it because it's probably coming. But whether it does or it doesn't, I just have a real hard time honestly looking people in the face, having this conversation and saying and denying the fact that there is disparate treatment among classes of people and neighborhoods of people largely based on the color of their skin as to whether they're going to get punished or let go based on whether or not they have marijuana in their pocket. And if it's illegal, enforce it across the board. I just, there's, there's a way to deal with this, but the way to deal with it does not involve treating one group differently from the other. Hello there. I, I, I just, I want to end the show this way. Uh, this, this is, Oh, let, let me, uh, and again, I, I wasn't even going to get here. Um, but in light of this whole Supreme Court story that I've, I've really talked about it more than I expected to talk about it. I know because it's coming from someone who's not one of them 
it'll fall on deaf ears. But there really is a problem with trust and truth in the United States. There really is. There is a real problem with uh, how Americans see other Americans and how they process information. I I got a deeply troubling email from someone uh, who wanted to know how we can keep this country together when essentially he views the other side as an enemy. And I actually think that's overstated. Most people on the left aren't that way. It just gets amplified by people who spend time on social media or even MSNBC. And if you actually look at the audience numbers of MSNBC, they're not really reflective of much of anyone. Hardly anyone watches MSNBC. It's the reality. On the weekend, nobody watches except the most angry and bittered partisans. And the media should be able to cover this fairly and accurately, and they can't because the media actually is of the demographic that watches and is of MSNBC. And when you say this, a lot of the media will say, oh, no, 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 that's not true. Oh, no, 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 that, that, that's, that's not great. And, and, and you can't say the media, you can't say the media that you're painting with too broad of a brush. And so then you say the American press, oh, that's too broad of a brush. Well, the political, oh, that's too broad of a brush. You've got to name all the individuals. There are too many to name. They used to call it the Gang of 500. Uh, Mark Helper, when he was at uh, ABC, he wrote, started the note, which began the political tradition of the deep dive morning email briefings on politics and refer to the Gang of 500, the 500 or so members of the press who cover uh, politics in America. The Gang of 500 is broken. And those who rely on the Gang of 500 within the media is broken. They have gotten inside a bubble. And it's hard to penetrate that bubble. It's deeply, deeply disrespectful to the American people. And they need some self-reflection. The American media no longer reflects the people and the news that they cover. They've become insular. They've become cheerleaders for the left. They've become mouthpieces for the Democrats. And they always go, give me examples, give me examples, give me examples, as if they're unaware. I'm reminded of uh, Brian Stelter had Barry Weiss on a while back, um, who was, was, she made some statement about some biases in the press and misinformation of the press. And he said, well, give me examples, as if he didn't believe her. And she gave repeated examples from CNN that he seemed to be unaware of and from himself. The American press can't hold politicians and the public to standards if they don't hold themselves to those standards. They can't demand that you disbelieve disinformation and fake news when they themselves are the perpetuators of the fake news. They lack the humility and self-awareness needed to rebuild trust from the public. And the American public needs a free press. Democracy requires a free press. But our press is not free. They are hijacked and held prisoner by their own minds in the left. And you thought these last two years were crazy. Welcome to 2022. It's coming up and nothing makes sense still, especially in business. If you're a small business owner, good luck getting financing from a big bank right now. I can offer you a fantastic solution if you're looking for $750,000 or more in financing for your business. 
First Liberty Building and Loan. Let's say you want to buy a new building or you want to refi existing debt or you want to buy a company. Basically, you see opportunity for your business to grow, but you've hit a wall with the mega banks getting financing. That's where First Liberty Building and Loan and my friends, the Frost family, come in. They solve small business financing problems better than anyone I've ever seen. They say yes, where big banks say no. It's that simple. Look, just do this. Spend 10 minutes with them. Call them, First Liberty Building and Loan. Say Eric sent you. In 10 minutes, you'll know if you're a good fit for their program. Go to firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. They help small businesses nationwide in all 50 states. Firstlibertyga.com.